It's been a harrowing, harrowing week for our country, hasn't it? Just, I woke up on Monday and was reading about what happened at the Boston Marathon, and uh, like you, I was glued to the TV for the next few days. Every time I went to the news or on the internet or the TV, I had to be trying to get an update and praying for, you know, the children and the, and the people involved in that, and then glad that uh, justice has, has been has so far meted out as they caught the, the two guys, one is now not alive and the, and the other brother. And then, obviously, what happened in uh, Texas with the plant explosion and, and been praying for them as well. And, you know, it, it's a good thing for us as a church uh, to pray for our country, especially in times like now, for people that are in need. And, and even for the insecurity, especially with what happened in Boston, that it kind of creates for, for the whole country and, and such. So, why don't we do this right now? As we go to the Word, uh, and I usually just pray, God bless us in the Word. Let's, let's pray as well for our country and for those affected by Boston and Texas, and let's lift up uh, some people in need as we turn to the Word now. Would you bow with me and let's pray? Father God, uh, indeed, there's probably not one of us here today or at Cactus and Venue that hasn't uh, been glued to the TV or at least to some news source and looking at what has happened this week. Father, to continue to see terrorism, domestic and, and foreign, on this soil is unnerving to say the very least, and Lord, very difficult for us who've grown up in this country. And Lord, we think, obviously, especially about the families and the people who have been directly impacted by what happened in Boston and by the bombing. And Lord, we think of the family of that little boy who, who lost his life. We think of, Lord, the, the family members of others who are now grieving like they never thought they would have to, this side of heaven. And so, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit, the, the, the love of the Father and the fellowship of the Son would be upon these families and that your grace and your goodness would be upon them. We pray that you'd bring people around them, God, to love them and nurture them in this time and that, Father, you would draw them to yourself and, uh, and that, Lord, you bring comfort to their lives and redeem uh, what obviously the terrible things that have happened in their lives. Father, we pray for those who likewise lost many in the, the explosion in Texas at the plant, and we pray, Father, that again, your power and your purpose and your presence would be upon them, and that, Lord, you begin to even restore that terrible situation. And Father, we think of our country, and we pray, God, that as there continues to be a heightened level of insecurity and unknown, that, God, we would lay our country at your feet, in your hands, and we pray that you might bring a protection, a provision for this country that we love. We pray you'd give skill and wisdom to our leadership uh, when it comes to knowing, Lord, how to best serve and protect our country. And, God, we would just lay uh, the United States before your feet. And, Father, as followers of your Son, Jesus, may we be ones who continue to keep strong faith knowing, Lord, that even in difficult times, you sit on the throne and that you are the one who is sovereign over our very lives and it's in you that we trust. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy and his precious name and we all say together, amen. So we're continuing in a study in the book of Galatians that, as I said last week, I have been so fired up for this look, I, I just hardly can contain myself. I, I, I love the Bible. It's, it's God's Word to all of us, and I love to unpack its truth. 
And, and today we get to a rather sobering passage, but it really doesn't have to be as sobering as many of us might see it as. We'll read it here in a second because really all it's saying, this passage before us today, is to be very careful when you change the ingredients of the gospel. And that's really the idea. All of us know that there are times in life that when you change the ingredients of something, it can have a drastic effect. But we've all experienced that. I had a friend back in my hometown of Chagrin Falls, Ohio, who one time filled up his Suburban with diesel fuel instead of regular gasoline. The only bummer was it didn't have a diesel engine. And so he didn't know what he has done, but he started to drive away from the gas station. And he tells the story that the engine was running kind of rough. And about four or five miles later, it stopped completely. And he still didn't know what was wrong. So he called AAA. They towed it to the shop where they discerned what he, has do what he had done. And though sometimes you can simply flush the fuel system out and put regular gas back in, this time it had damaged the engine all the way down to the pistons and the sidewalls, and they had to completely replace the engine in the Suburban to the tune of $5,000. And so my friend learned the hard way that sometimes in life when you change the ingredients of something, in this case, diesel fuel for regular gasoline, it can have a drastic and even catastrophic effect. And we all could tell stories like that. Uh, let, let's kind of uh, see this maybe in action here. You saw the, the glasses of clear liquid that I put up here. Uh, these are look like identical glasses of clear liquid, but when you taste them, you find out that they're kind of different. So let's try to get a volunteer maybe to come up and taste these for us. Gordon, would you be willing? You wouldn't? Come on, give it up for Gordon. He's going to come up here and taste these for us. All right. <laughs> this is Gordon Snyder, and Gordon, did, he had no idea I was going to call you up, did you? Yeah, not at all. And, and Gordon, but Gordon, as a friend of mine, at least was, and he's been around here for a very long time. He serves in our Stevens ministry and is a wonderful counselor and prayer man. And I promise you, none of these will hurt you. So I just need you to taste them and tell us what they are, okay? So here's the first one. Just give that a taste and tell us what you think that tastes like. You can smell it too. Yep. Vodka. It's not vodka. <laughs> I thought about it. I did. But that would be a career-limiting maneuver for me. Yeah. It's... Water. And not just water, this is pure mountain spring water. It really is. So it's not even Scottsdale water, it's just good water. All right, now, uh, why don't you taste this and tell us what you think that tastes like? Like soda water? Not soda water or maybe tonic water because it's got some quinine in it okay. it's kind of a bitter taste isn't it? it is yeah the guy in the first service had almost spit it back out he had no idea what this was same but cup? no it wasn't the same cup so yeah <laughs> i washed them all so you got pure water you got some bitter water and then why don't you give that a taste and tell us what you think that is i know what that is you know what it is yeah, what is it vinegar well just give it a taste and let us uh, <laughs> It's vinegar, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's not pure vinegar. It's been watered down, but it doesn't taste very good, does it? No. It doesn't. So here's a pack of Altoids, and I thank you for helping us. God bless you. All right. So here's the deal. It, it, it's it, three clear glasses of what looks like water. 
But when you taste them, you realize they're, they're very different. And I did think about vodka, but I would never have done that. But vodka would work too. It, 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 it's water. It's quinine, which has a very bitter taste to it, and then obviously the vinegar, which is, is a very strong taste that most people would not like. And, and so obviously you, you get the point, that, that something can look the same on the outside. It can look like clear liquid, but if you change the ingredients just a little bit, it, it can have a drastic effect. And all of us have learned this in life, whether it's with gasoline versus diesel fuel or variations of clear liquid, or when somebody makes your favorite recipe and they forget the best part of it, or when Starbucks messes up your order and doesn't give you what you thought you were going to get, or even when you add the wrong ingredients into your marriage relationship. We all have examples of things in life that go bad when you mess with the ingredients. And what you need to know as we move into the next section in this book of Galatians that we're in is that God says the exact same thing is true, precisely true, when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has given us, as we saw last week, his gospel. And it contains certain components of truth and grace. And get this, God is so protective of this gospel because it's how we find and know him that when we mess with it and change it, he says it has a catastrophic effect on not only the gospel itself, but on our very lives. And so let's read about it. If you brought a Bible with you, I want you to open up to Galatians chapter 1, and we're going to be reading the next section. Remember I said we're going to do paragraph after paragraph in this book. If you didn't bring a Bible, you will find the Scripture on your outline or in the pew rack in front of you there's a Bible, or you can look up here on the screen. Galatians 1, we're going to read verses 6 through 9, and this is what it says. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now, before we get to the gist of this sober warning given to us here, let's first establish what the ingredients are of this gospel that is mentioned four times in these short verses here. And thankfully, the book of Galatians, as well as the rest of the New Testament, clearly tell us what the components of the gospel are. And though there are various and sundry aspects to God's gospel that's come to us in Christ, when you think about it, there's essentially three of them, three key and indispensable ingredients that add up to this gospel that's come to us in Jesus. And these are the ingredients of the gospel. And the first one concerns the person of Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, answering the question of precisely who is Jesus is a significant part of the gospel because he is the carrier of the gospel. So we learned last week from verses 1 and 3 of Galatians 1 that Jesus Christ is not a mere man, but the Lord Jesus Christ. So it says in verses 1 and 3 of Galatians 1 that the gospel does not come from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ. Then verse 3, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So here's what we know. Jesus was not, and simply not, a human being, although he did come in the flesh, but he was God come in the flesh. God coming to do something for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. Uh, this is affirmed by John <coughs> in his gospel when he begins the entire gospel by affirming this. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And then it tells us in verses 12 and 14 that the Word is Jesus. So, so dial into that. Jesus was not created. No, on the contrary, it tells us here that he was the agent of creation, and that the reason that's important is because he was also and is also God. And tons of other scriptures affirm this. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, say it this way. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Now here it is. Whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So Jesus in this passage here is sovereign. Again, he's the, the agent of creation. He's the heir of all things. And probably most potent, the exact imprint of God's nature is upon Jesus, which most Bible experts take to mean that the very essence and nature of God was and is upon Jesus. Jesus himself said in John 8, 58, and I quote, before Abraham was, I am. So even Abraham from the Old Testament, Jesus says, I pre-existed as deity even before Abraham. And so no matter how you slice it, folks, Jesus, through whom this gospel comes to us, is declared, as Isaiah would say, to be God with us. So the person of Jesus Christ is the first significant ingredient to understanding the gospel message. God has come for you. But we're just ramping up. Notice with me a second key ingredient to the gospel, and this concerns the work of Jesus Christ. So you don't just have the person of Jesus, but also the work of Jesus Christ. So it's not just who Jesus is that makes up the gospel, but what he has done for us that is also a key ingredient to the gospel. And again, we learned this last week in our opening look at Galatians, when in verse 4, it clearly says about Jesus, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. So as we all know, Jesus came and died on a wooden cross as a substitute for our sins in order to bring us the forgiveness that we need in order to know God on a temporal and an eternal basis. Don't miss this. God gave God. God gave Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, so that you and I might be forgiven and be able to know God both here and now and for all eternity. And again, this is all over the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. Say, for I delivered to you of first importance what I also received. Here it is, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So there you have it again. Christ died for our sins. Could it be more plain and obvious? Why? So that we might have eternal life. This is the gospel. The person of Jesus, God come to be with us, 
The work of Jesus, his death on a cross for our sins, proven by his resurrection from the grave. And then there is a third and final key ingredient to the gospel. And this pulls it all together. And that is the response of faith alone. The response of faith alone. And now listen very closely and dial into this because a lot of people, even a lot of Christians, I'm telling you, don't get this. But what God has done for us in the gospel, sending his son, the person of Jesus Christ, to be the atonement for our sins through his work on the cross, requires a response from every human being on planet earth. And what the scriptures make clear, and particularly the book of Galatians, is that the only response God is looking for from you and me is to put our trust in Christ's work on our behalf and place our faith solely and fully upon him. So salvation, what the Bible calls being saved, is only secured by initially what Jesus Christ has done for you but then your response to that, which is a response, the Bible says, of faith. And you might be thinking right now, well, outside of not responding at all, what other response could a human being have? And I'm glad you asked. Because you see, the number one temptation, I believe, of our fallen souls, and tell me if this isn't true, is to not simply trust and receive what someone else has done for us, in this case, Jesus, but to attempt self-atonement when we sense a need in our lives. It's really true. In every other area of your life, when you experience problems, trust me, you do not rely on what somebody else has done for you. You tend to take the bull by the horns, engage in self-atonement, and try to fix your problems. You've been taught that since when you were a little guy or gal. So, so if you're having problems by fudging on your taxes and you get caught, you're not going to say, well, I sure hope somebody bails me out. You're going to say, I, I better take the bull by the horns and make this right. Pay the fines, pay the fees, come clean so that I can move on. Or, or say you're having problems in your business. You, you don't necessarily trust somebody else to bail you out. No, you say that I need to fix this business. I need to work hard and I need to, to get it back on track. In a problem with your marriage, in a problem with your kids. But we tend to not look to others to say, I want you to fix this for me. No, it's actually the American way to say, I better kind of pull myself up by my own bootstraps and get to work. In other words, we're a nation that has done very well at working hard and engaging in self-atonement. The only problem is, is that then when you try to come to God like that, when you try to work your way to heaven, when you try to be good enough for God, as you've done in every other area of your life, and you think that he must be impressed and reserved for you a front row in eternity, he says you don't get it. He, he says that might work in other areas of your life. But here's the problem. You are a sinner and I am holy. And your sin is so great and my holiness is so vast that no matter how great you might be, whether you're Billy Graham, Mother Teresa, or Gandhi, it's not going to work. That you can't engage in self-atonement when it comes to your own salvation. God says the only thing we can do is bank on the person and work of Jesus, the first two ingredients of the gospel, and place our faith and trust solely and fully upon him. As the Great Reformation would say from 500 years ago, this was their mantra, 
faith alone in Christ alone. That's the gospel. Faith alone in Christ alone. But instead of faith alone being the response we opt for, we want to say, well, yeah, I do trust, but I'm also going to add my own works to it. I'm going to trust and be a really good person. And when I do that, God has to be impressed and pleased with me. And I love how one author says it. He says, if you approach your Christian faith like that, you will be engaging in an adventure in missing the point. Because you've totally missed, as we're going to see in a second here, what the gospel is about. You know, Galatians, we're going to learn this more this summer, is going to actually hammer this point home to us quite often and with a lot of clarity. But for right now, just so that we know this is indeed what the Scriptures teach about this third ingredient to the gospel, look at chapter 2, verse 16 of Galatians. It, It couldn't be more clear. It says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed then in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. And I admit it, there's sometimes when the scriptures are are cryptic and kind of not clear and you have to really dig and understand what they're saying, can I be so bold to say this is not one of those times? I, I mean, I don't know how you could miss the clarity of what it's saying here. No person is justified before God, being made right before him, by works of the law. Obviously here referring to the Old Testament moral code. But only through faith in Christ. So what's the response? He says it. Believe. Believe in Jesus, his person and his work, because no one's ever going to be made right with God by any type of good works. That's what he's saying here. And so these are the ingredients of the gospel. Don't ever forget this. The person of Jesus, God with us in flesh and blood. The work of Jesus, his death on a cross for our sins. And the response of faith, faith alone, apart from any human effort or good works. It's really not a complicated scenario. It's just a life-changing thing. Now, back to, to what happens when we mess with the ingredients, which is the whole point of today's talk. Uh, what happens when we substitute the pure water, the pure water of the gospel with either quinine or vinegar? Or what happens when we try to put diesel fuel into God's gas tank that requires gasoline? Two things. Two things that verses 6 to 9 of Galatians 1 tells us when we change the ingredients of the gospel, when we mess with any of the three things that we just went over. And the first thing is this. It becomes an altogether different gospel. It becomes an altogether different gospel. In other words, God says that if you add, delete, or mess with these three things that are so clear in Galatians as well as the New Testament, it is no longer the gospel that has the power to both save and sanctify. It's no longer the gospel that forgives us of our sins and brings us into a right relationship with God both here and now as well as for eternity. He says when you mess with these three ingredients, it becomes an altogether different gospel and essentially useless in trying to get your soul to where you really want to be. And so look with me at how God states this again in rather clear language. Though this is a warning passage, it's still very clear. He says in verses 6 and 7, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there really is another, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. 
Three words you just want to latch on to here to understand this. Desert, different, and distort. That's what he's saying here. That word desert there simply means a turncoat. This word was used 2,000 years ago in military language to talk about somebody who deserts in time of war as basically a turncoat. Their allegiance at one point used to be on one side, and now at best they're neutral or maybe even on the other side. They have changed their colors. They're a turncoat. And why is it that this person who messes with the gospel of Christ is called a turncoat? Well, it goes on to say because they are turning to a different gospel. A different gospel. Again, that word different there, according to Strong's Concordance, which deals with the original language, I like this, says that that word means one not of the same nature, form, class, or kind. I read that this week and I thought, well, that covers just about everything, doesn't it? One of not the same nature, form, class, or kind. So when you and I say that something is a different kind of animal, we mean it's not the same animal. When we say that somebody or something is in a different class, we're saying it's not in the same class. We say something's of a different nature, we're saying it's a completely different thing. That's how we use the word. So what God says here is that when you mess with the ingredients of the gospel, it becomes a different gospel, which by its very nature isn't the same anymore. And then notice that third word, which is probably the most potent of all the words used here to describe what happens when you mess with the gospel, and that's that word distort, distort. This is an interesting word. Uh, the Greek word translated distort here is only used two times in the New Testament, and it's a very simple word that simply means to turn something into another thing, to distort something to the point where it becomes a different entity. The other place it occurs in is in Acts chapter 2, verse 20, where it quotes the Old Testament in talking about the sun turning into or being distorted into darkness. The idea of the sun going dark to the point that it becomes a distorted entity, no longer gives off heat, no longer gives off light, so it's no longer essentially the sun. And so go back to Galatians 1 with that idea. When you change the ingredients of the gospel by adding to it or taking it, something away, it becomes distorted and useless just like the sun that would go dark and no longer have any heat nor light. Three words used here to hammer the same point home. Deserted, distorted, different. When you change the ingredients to the gospel, it becomes a distorted entity. And folks, a different entity. And, and, and when you think about it, I know this is a sobering passage, but when you think about it, it just makes sense that this would be so. I mean, think about what happens when you mess with the person of Christ. When you try to say, well, Jesus wasn't really God. There's offshoots of Christianity that do that. The secular view, the prevailing secular view of Jesus today tends to say that. He was a really good guy, a good teacher, a moral man, uh, but he was not really God come in the flesh. As soon as you say that, the question that we need to ask ourselves is that if Jesus wasn't God, then who was he to die on a cross for our sins, right? I mean, think about it. All of a sudden now the atonement makes no sense. I mean, lots of people die for other people. It's a very loving and altruistic thing to do, and we can tell amazing stories of what happens when that happens this side of heaven, but that doesn't save you eternally. If Jesus died for us, but he wasn't God come in the flesh, then who was he to then say he could save us eternally through his death? 
It makes no sense. You've just taken all the punch out of the gospel if you take away the person of Jesus. Or obviously, if you take away the work of Jesus, the fact that he did die for our sins, and you say, you know, he came to teach us some really good things, and he came to model for us what good behavior looks like, and he came to to give us some really good stories that we can pass on to our kids. I sit there and go, and I'm I'm not being sacrilegious here, I say, that's your gospel, big whip. I mean, there's lots of people who have told good stories. There's lots of people who have lived very moral lives. But, but if they didn't do something that helps me connect with God in the deepest parts of my sinfulness, then they're just another good religious teacher. But Jesus said he's much more than that, that the power of the gospel is a fact that he died so that you might be forgiven. God gave God so that you might be brought to God. And obviously the response of faith alone Again, there are plenty of offshoots today that mess with this one, probably the most popular one, and Galatians is going to address this, so we don't need to to beat that drum too much today here, but Galatians is going to talk about a lot about the people who want to say, well, yeah, it's faith, and I do have faith, but you know what? I better add my good works to it as well. If I don't have my good works, then you know what? My faith just might not be enough. And what Galatians is going to argue is that that's a totally different gospel, that if you elevate human effort either above or alongside Jesus-focused faith, you no longer have the gospel because now it's more about you or equally about you than it is about the person you're putting faith in. You know, I thought about this for years. I've been a Christian 31 years and a pastor for 20-some-odd years, and I know how some people think, especially when you get kind of excited and passionate about this. They'll say at this point, well, come on, Jamie. You're being awfully particular here, aren't you? I mean, so there are some people that get a little confused about the identity of Jesus or what he came to do or their particular nature of faith and trust. Why make such a big deal of this? Why are you getting all bent out of shape about a little religious diversity? Is this really worth getting all this worked up about? See, I don't know how some of you think. You think, well, I'm not sure I'm interested in the answer to that question. Every one of your lost friends is. This is the question the world asks us. I'm telling you, if you you go get a CD or go online and and give this sermon to a friend of yours that doesn't know the Lord, at this point in the discussion, he's going to be asking or she's going to be asking, why are you getting so worked up about this? Why is this such a big deal? Why do Christians tend to hang on to this area of theology so much? And, And by the way, I have a very clear answer to that, and this might help you as well. And my answer is this, and that is that it's not me who's drawing the lines that we are tracing here today. It's not me. Or as the old saying goes, don't shoot the messenger. Because look one last time at the closing words of this paragraph in Galatians 1. Look at verses 8 and 9, and you will see it's not me who's saying that this is a big deal. It's God. Look at how he wraps this up. This is a very sober passage. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So I guess I would say at the very, very least, if I had to be nice about it, that messing with the gospel ingredients creates a huge chasm between you and God. Would that be a nice, gentle way of saying it? It creates a chasm between you and God. And I'm actually fudging there because the word used in the Scriptures here twice isn't the word chasm. What word is it? accursed. 
What does that word mean? It's the Greek word anathema. We've heard that word before, so you know something's an anathema. And it literally means to be cut off from divine favor. Whoa. And you know what theologians kind of argue about with this passage is they argue about whether or not that means cut off just here and now or for all eternity. And they kind of have arguments on both sides. Some people will say, well, you know, Paul talks about if an angel does this or if me and my companions do this, and so he's obviously not saying that it affects eternity. It just will be kind of a discipline this side of heaven because obviously angels aren't cut off for all of eternity. But then others retort to that and say, well, uh, guess what? Angels actually have been cut off for all of eternity because Satan was once an angel and he's now cut off for eternity. And Paul's not saying that he and his friends would be cut off. They're saying if they deny the gospel, they would be cut off. And their main argument is, is that we're not talking here about like modes of baptism or, you know, or, or, or things like that. We're talking about the very core of how one is saved, the very core of the gospel. And that if you, if you mess with that, if you change it, it no longer has power to save, even to save eternally. It's a tough issue. I mean, this word's only used a few times in the New Testament, anathema, and I, I understand both sides of the argument, but I got to tell you folks, and you know me, I'm a grace guy, but I tend to lean, I've always been a leaner in most things, I tend to lean toward the view here that eternal realities are at stake. I don't think one can lose their salvation. I don't think that's what it's saying. But I think it does say that it's possible to think you're saved and really not be, that you never were. And somebody who denies the person of Jesus Christ, denies the work of Jesus Christ, or denies faith alone, trusting in what Jesus has done for us, is dangerously distant from the gospel that can save. That's why I'd say it creates a huge chasm between you and God. At the very least, there's a loss of joy, peace, relationship with God, loss in your prayer life, loss in the power that you get from the Holy Spirit. All the life-changing benefits that we have in Christ are affected when we mess with the gospel ingredients. But let me now say it in the positive, because I always like to end on a positive note. Here's what the flip side of this is, and that is to the degree that you and I, and Cactus, you and I, and Venue, you and I, keep the ingredients of the gospel pure to the degree that we don't mess with the purity of the gospel, to the degree that we keep our eye, our spiritual eye, on the ball, is to the degree that we are right where God wants us. The person of Jesus Christ, God come for you, the work of Jesus, his death for you, and your response of faith that unleashes his power in your life, that's the gospel. And to the degree that you keep the main thing, the main thing, is to the degree that you're in that sweet spot when it comes to your faith. And so take heart on that today. And if you haven't got there yet today, I'm going to pray with you in just a second to be able to do that. But one last thought. Some of you notice the second table here of, again, glasses. Gordon, don't worry. You're not going to have to drink a thing. And, and these is all just all pure water. So I'll show you here. Mm. Just pure water. And, uh, but it's not mountain spring water. It's Phoenix water. It doesn't taste as good, but it is pure water. Now, as much as we have talked today about the purity and continuity of the gospel, I, I also want you to remember, and this is a good closing thought for us, that within the framework of the gospel, 
there is a tremendous amount of diversity in how we express our faith and live out our faith. And my closing challenge to you today is going to be this, that when it comes to competing worldviews that mess with the gospel, be discerning. But when it comes to other believers who just don't happen to live like you or even believe all the things that you believe or express their faith like you, don't judge. Because that's exactly what the Bible says. And, and so picture it this way. Picture the fact that you've got three Christians here who are, are kind of half filled up, if not more filled up, with the purity of the gospel of Christ. They're walking with God as best they can. Uh, but believer number one here tends to look a little bit different than you. In other words, believer number one might have some tattoos or long hair. Or, or they wear those jeans that you can buy with holes in them. It don't make sense to me, but, but they, they, they buy jeans that have holes in them. Or, or, or maybe they're not as much into nutrition as you are, so they've packed on a few pounds over the years. Or whatever, they might look different from you. They, they just look different from you. And you're really tempted to judge, but you just remember that they embrace the same gospel you do, so it's okay that they're different from you. And then you find some other Christians, and this gets maybe even harder, who, who, who not just look different from you, but, but man, they just got a radically different lifestyle than you do. They have some freedoms that you don't have, that they might engage in certain activities that are not overtly sinful, but that you don't engage in based on your faith. Maybe certain movies they might see or certain things that they might partake in. Am I being cryptic enough? You all know what I mean. They, they might engage in certain things, and they, they look different from you. They have a, a different lifestyle expression of their faith, and though you might not do those things, they haven't denied any essence at all of the gospel. And then it can kind of get even harder because you got people around you that not just look different, and they don't even, even just have different lifestyles, but doggone it, they think differently than you. They vote different values than you might vote. Or maybe they have a particular theology within the overall theology that the Bible gives that, that you got an issue with. Maybe how they view the charismatic movement. Maybe they, how they view certain aspects of even salvation. we got all kinds of Sunday school classes in this church, and they just view things a little bit differently than you. And they can prove it from the Bible, but you don't agree with their interpretation of the Bible. And, and what happens with Christianity a lot is that we see all of this diversity within it and i got to tell you, folks, this is very real stuff. Oh, this is a great illustration, by the way. See how my hands got, got dirty with all this? See, that's what happens to me throughout the week when I spend time with you guys on this level. <laughs> because I get people coming to me all the time saying, why are people dressed like that? Why do they look like that? That's not good. And I get people come to me and saying, you know, why is so-and-so have this kind of freedom? And why are they doing those things? And you need to preach sermons about that. And why are they voting like that? You need to do that. And why are they teaching that in Sunday school? And I just think to myself, man, my hands are dirty. I got all this food coloring all over my hands. But you know what's so cool? Because I haven't changed one ingredient of this water. There's no quinine in here. There's no, what was the other stuff we put in there? Oh, vinegar. There's no vinegar in here. In other words, if I drink this, I might get cancer, but if I drink this, <laughs> it tastes like pure water. I, I haven't messed with the gospel at all. It, it just looks a little bit different. And so that's why I say to you and to me that when it comes to the essence of the gospel, be discerning, 
But when it comes to all the other stuff, stop judging. Because that's where truth and grace meet. Truth says, be discerning and don't ever fudge on the core ingredients of the gospel. Just, and, then, and then not judging says, when it comes to all the other things, let it go and embrace unity for the brotherhood and sisterhood of our faith. Amen to that? Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the grace that you've given us that comes to us in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray, God, that as we all go from here now with some pictures in our minds of what it might mean to change the ingredients of something, but then what it also might mean just to have the color be a little bit different, that, Father, we'd be able to apply that to our life. And, Father, I pray that we'd be people who are discerning in a highly biblical way, but that we don't judge, especially a fellow brother or sister in Christ. Father, I pray that as uh, there are some here today who maybe for the very first time the light has gone on in their head about what the gospel really is when it comes to the person of Jesus, the work of Jesus, and most importantly, that response of faith, which many Christians even get confused about, that, Lord, maybe today is the day that they're ready to place their faith and only their faith in you. And so, Lord, right where they sit, or at Cactus and Venue, right where they sit, they, they say, oh, Jesus, thank you that you came for me. Thank you that you died for me, and thank you that what you ask of me is to turn my allegiance, my faith, and trust upon you. And Lord, as that person does that right now, may you encourage them that indeed today is the day of their salvation. They have gone from darkness to light, from death to life, from having no hope to having hope eternal. And Lord, may they mark this the day of their salvation. God, for the rest of us, may we go out of here with joy. May we go out of here realizing that you have given us everything we need for life and godliness. And it's all contained in the gospel. The gospel matters. And we pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. And we all say together, amen. amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.